When writing to his son in the faith, Paul began the second chapter of 2 Timothy with these words. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. When I last preached through 2 Timothy, I linked those verses with a passage we come to today and entitled the message, Passing Down the Truth. And I began the sermon by asking the question, what is it you want to pass on to your children? And ask if there was a special heirloom that had been passed down for several generations in your family. I proceeded to tell you about our family fork. The fork my great-grandfather had in his mess kit when he left Hanover before he could be forced to enlist in the Prussian Army and sailed to America in 1866. I noted that the heirlooms that we leave our children are important, and we hope that they will cherish them. But I also noted that there is obviously something more important than a fork we want to pass down to them, and it's our faith. Now, I do have to admit I toyed with the idea of bringing the fork back into the pulpit again. It's a very special fork. But I decided I could better introduce our study for today by moving from an isolated heirloom to our broader heritage. And it just so happens that heritage of faithfulness was the theme of the 125th anniversary celebration of Washington Christian Church that Marilyn and I attended last week. So rather than share the story of the fork in more detail, I want to direct your thinking to our heritage. And I've chosen to do so by sharing with you the communion meditation I gave last week in Kansas. Now remember, this is spoken in Kansas to the members of the church there. Marilyn and I came to Washington from Illinois 47 years ago as newlyweds. Having fallen in love with the church when I came to preach a trial sermon, we assumed we would be here for many years. But after only two, we were unexpectedly given the opportunity to go back home. While we were here, a new church had been established only 15 miles from our parents, and the church was in need of a minister. The church was meeting in a storefront, and we all had visions of what it might become. After prayerfully considering several options, we settled on becoming a church that puts a high priority on teaching and on building strong families. Now, some 45 years later, I enjoy the privilege of ministering to second and third generations, including some of our own. We have the joy of ministering regularly with a daughter and son-in-law that farm less than 15 miles from our home and four of our grandchildren. Our son and his family live in Tennessee, so we don't have the opportunity to be as involved in their daily life, but they faithfully serve the Lord in their church and community. 
When we were invited to come back for this 125th anniversary celebration, now as grandparents, after having been here for the 100th as parents, and I was told the theme was heritage of faithfulness and was asked to bring the communion meditation, I put those two things together. And while thinking how the Lord's Supper contributes to maintaining a heritage of faithfulness, my thoughts went back to the Passover and what Moses told the children of Israel after reminding them of the Ten Commandments God had given to them and of the covenant they had made with him. Not only was it important that they regularly celebrate the Passover to remember how he had delivered them from slavery, it was essential that they obey the commandments given to them and that they teach them diligently to their children. In Deuteronomy 6, we read, Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God, to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. If we would maintain the heritage of faithfulness that has been passed down to us, we must meet around this table on the Lord's Day and remember what Jesus did for us on the cross and in the tomb, how he died to redeem us and rose again to indwell us. But in order for that heritage of faithfulness to be passed on to our children and grandchildren, it must be obvious to them that we love the Lord with every part of our being and his presence must be seen in our daily life and sensed within the walls of our home. We must constantly be on the lookout for teachable moments when we can point to Jesus and share his commandments and promises. We must openly and freely express our gratitude for all he has done and continues to do. And we must honestly confess our need for forgiveness when we fall short. And make it clear that forgiveness is always available for our children from their heavenly father and from their earthly parents as well. If we would do that, the heritage of faithfulness will be passed on to future generations. And our time around this table this morning will not only reflect on the past, but will anticipate the future when we're gathered together as family around the banquet table in heaven. You know, the most important element of our heritage that we want to pass down to our children is obviously our faith. A faith that is grounded in the truth about who we are, what life's really all about, and who it is that makes possible our eternal life in the presence of our Creator. Truth 
that's been revealed to us in God's Word, which Paul has very appropriately labeled the Word of Truth. In a world that denies the existence of universal absolute truth, it's essential that we pass down to our children the truth of God's Word and that we do so effectively. What Paul tells Timothy in our text for today will enable us to do just that and to not only effectively pass on the truth to our children, but to all we would lead to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He begins by making it clear that when passing down the truth, we must not unnecessarily complicate it. We're in 2 Timothy chapter 2, ready for verse 14. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Paul told Timothy to remind us not to wrangle over words, but that is not to suggest that words and their meaning are unimportant. We refer to the Bible as the Word of God. And the gospel message is transmitted verbally, even in a day of multimedia. You know, pictures and images can enhance the message, but they can never become the primary means through which it is communicated. God spoke to reveal himself to mankind. And what he said has been passed down through the spoken and written word from generation to generation. Obviously, anything that is important for us to understand must be carefully thought through, something that is called linear thinking, and that demands the use of words. God's revelation requires such thinking and is therefore communicated through the use of words. So words are very important, and it is important that we understand the words that were used to communicate God's will. There is indeed a time and place for detailed word studies and careful exegesis of the text. But we cannot allow ourselves to get so caught up in debating words that we miss the message, nor argue about the subtleties of a word to such an extent that we miss the point the Spirit is trying to communicate. And sad to say, that sometimes happens, especially in institutions of higher learning and that's why some actually lose their faith in seminary. They lose sight of God while playing head games with his word. Paul says such word wrangling is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Now again, that doesn't mean word studies in and of themselves are wrong. In fact, a little word study right here might help us better understand what Paul is saying. When he says such wrangling leads to the ruin of the hearers, the word he uses is the word from which we get the word catastrophe. It means to turn upside down, to destroy, and is the opposite of to edify or to build up. He's warning us that getting sidetracked into useless discussions can wear down our hearers. It can confuse them and blind them to what God is trying to say. 
It can turn our attempt to teach God's word into a catastrophe. A catastrophe with eternal consequences. There is a real warning here to everyone who seeks to pass on the word of God. Teachers and parents alike. We need to keep the hearer and their level of understanding in mind when teaching God's word. You know, there is a time to serve the meat of the gospel. To serve solid spiritual food that requires some hard chewing before it can be digested. There's also a time to serve nothing but milk. And we have to be careful to discern when to serve what. As students and children mature, we adjust their diet. We answer their questions as they are raised, and we try to equip them for the questions they're facing in the world. If we don't know all the answers ourselves, we take them to a place where truth is taught and honest answers are given. We make sure our kids take advantage of the learning opportunities afforded in a Bible-teaching church. If we don't allow them to be so overwhelmed with biblical facts and theological arguments that they lose sight of the simple fact that Jesus loves them. In passing down the truth, we don't make it more complicated than it needs to be. But then again, neither do we mishandle it. Verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. The King James Version puts it this way. Study to shew thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, we heard that verse quoted a lot in Bible college. And it is important that we study God's word if we're going to handle it accurately. What Paul actually says is be diligent, be eager to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handing accurately the word of truth. Now, study obviously is a part of that, and we spend a lot of time in serious study. But it takes more than academics to find God's approval in the way we handle the word of truth. It takes a desire to know God, a desire to understand his will, and a diligent desire to please him in all that we do. Without that desire, there's a tendency to take the knowledge we have and twist it to suit our purposes. If our motivation for studying God's word is to find proof texts that support our conclusions, we probably won't handle it accurately. Cult leaders and authoritarian preachers do that all the time. And quoting scripture to our kids to reinforce the behavior we want may lead to mishandling the text. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't teach our children what the Bible says about obedience and respect and honoring parents. But some parents have used God as a boogeyman and the Bible as a billy club to beat their children into submission and in doing so have driven them away from a loving 
Heavenly Father. Obviously, that's not what we want to accomplish when trying to pass down the word of truth. And if we're diligent about handling it accurately, that won't happen. We won't misapply it. And we won't take it out of context. When Paul says we're to handle accurately the word of truth, he actually says cutting straight the word of truth. And that's where the King James Version gets rightly dividing the word of truth. Now that has led to some pretty far-out theories about how the Bible is to be divided into periods or dispensations, but that's not what Paul is talking about. He's not even talking about the need to divide it into the Old and New Testament, as important as that is. He's simply saying we must handle the Word of God in a straightforward manner without deviation. We must be careful to never twist it or distort it in any manner. That means we've got to keep it in context, and we've got to diligently try to understand what God is saying. You know, it's been said that you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say. And you can, if you don't handle it accurately. But if your desire is to know what God is saying, and you're committed to handling the word as honestly and accurately as possible, it's not going to be open to umpteen interpretations. You may have umpteen applications but your interpretive options will be very limited. God did not write his word in a way to confuse us, but to enlighten us. So let's not complicate it or mishandle it when passing it down to our children. And let's not stray from it. Verses 16 through 18. But avoid worldly and empty chatter. For it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and thus they upset the faith of some. You know, when Paul cautions us about worldly and empty chatter, I don't believe he's suggesting that we shouldn't engage in social conversation. Small talk can be good, okay? Small talk can be a way to get to know someone and to give them a chance to know you. I don't think it's wrong to chat with our friends or with our children. In fact, I think it's very important that we do so. But our chatting should lead to godliness, not ungodliness. And we do that by reminding and remaining our, our conscience of the presence of our Lord, even while chatting or texting. We don't leave him outside the locker room. And we have to be careful that we don't talk too much. If we're always talking and saying nothing, when we do have something to say, no one will listen. Maybe that's the reason our kids tune us out so often. There is a time to speak and a time to be silent. And obviously, we're not listening if we're talking all the time. And there is another even more grave danger to talking too much. It's the danger of talking about things, important things, that we do not understand. 
if we've always got to be saying something, adding our two cents worth to every conversation, we're probably going to be speaking from ignorance much of the time. That gets real dangerous when we're trying to communicate truth because we will generally end up with half-truths and misinformation. And as Hymenius and Philetus discovered, half-truths and misinformation tend to spread faster than truth. They spread like gangrene. Apparently, they thought the only resurrection we experience is the spiritual resurrection from death to life at our conversion. And it is true that we do rise to walk in newness of life when we come to Christ. But their conclusion that that was the only resurrection, the only resurrection we'll ever experience was way off base. And it was rightfully upsetting everyone. Apparently they attempted to be knowledgeable teachers. They wanted to, to, to say things that no one knew. They were trying to pass on something that they may have picked up in the marketplace. And they strayed from the truth. And indeed, we are sometimes too quick to jump on a new theological bandwagon or to embrace the latest teaching. You know, it scares me sometimes that the books that are being published and now they're on the Internet that are spiritual in nature. We've got to be very careful about what we embrace because there's a lot of half-truth out there, a lot of error out there. If you don't have that basic foundation of a solid understanding of God's word, you're in danger. And you just pick up a book and assume it's true, okay? I'm very, very concerned about that. And I think the arrogance of those who think they've been called to save the church by not only changing the way we do church, by even changing the fundamental nature of the church amazes me. It's crazy. The things that we hear in the church world today how we ought to be doing things differently. You know, it's not your, not your grandfather's church here anymore. Well, praise God, this is still my grandfather's church. The gospel is the same, and it has been for 2,000 years. Now, we may need to include a few things on the wall, but that doesn't change the message. It does not get so absorbed in, in putting on a production that we ignore the truth of God's word. It scares me what's happening in churches. You know, if we're always looking for something new to do, the latest thing, something new to offer, we run the danger of straying from the truth. So I tend to be rather conservative, if you hadn't noticed. If we start teaching half-truths in our churches and our homes, we shouldn't be shocked if those we care about stop listening to us. You know, how many parents have heard the charge from their teenagers that they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> and if we're merely passing on hearsay and things we really don't know for sure, they may be right. So let's stick with the truth. <laughs> the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And if we'll do that, those we want to influence will learn that they can trust us. And they might even decide to obey us. Even more importantly, if we stick with the truth as revealed in God's word, we'll be able to pass on the truth that will lead them to trust and obey 
the Lord. That is our goal. Let's celebrate that this morning.